Phidias was a 5th century B.C. sculptor in Greece, and he was working on a particular sculpture that would go into the Parthenon and be elevated rather high so that the only thing people could see was the front of the sculpture. But he was working on the back where the tresses of the sculpture's, the male sculpture's hair flowed, and he was working in great detail, and someone came and asked him, why are you working on so much detail in the back? No one will ever see it. And he said, God will. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if you could review your entire life and anticipate every action and every word and every uh, element of your life in the future and be satisfied knowing God will see it? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have that satisfaction? Yet some of us are frightened by the prospect that God sees everything that we do. Uh, one lady that's not very satisfied is reportedly the oldest woman in the world. She's 129 years old, lives in the Chechnyan province in Russia. Her name is um, Koku Istanbuliba, and she was recently interviewed uh, following what uh, was her birthday. And she said, I have never had a good day in my life. 129 years old. 129 years old. There are some that in their walk with God and in the progress they're trying to make would have to just confess, I'm not sure many of my days have been very good. I feel like I'm more of a failure and I feel like I've had more failure than I have had victory. It's such a struggle. It's so challenging. I'd be ashamed to tell you what's on my heart and mind and what I've carried here today. I've got good news for you. There's a passage of Scripture that's going to help you today. In fact, there are lots of them. But Titus chapter 2, our text for this morning, is for you. It is difficult. Of course, it does remind me of the um, couple of um, college sophomores that went to their rival's uh, university and stole their mascot. Happened to be a goat. Is there anything in this world more smelly than an old goat? Well, they stole the goat, and they brought it back to the dorm, and one of, the, one of their classmates said, well, what about the smell? And they said, well, the goat will have to get used to it. <laughs> Let's just admit, there's some things that just stink. There's some, there's some lives that stink. There's some marriages that stink. There's some homes that stink. There are some workplaces and work performances that stink. And it's because of that that the New Testament was written. Have you ever read through the New Testament and thought, you know, God really does know human life. And not just the New Testament, but the Old. I mean, God brings His Word and sits right where we are. He has walked this path. He knows what He's talking about. That's what we've got here in the text. Titus chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul writes that in Christ... God has provided all of the grace we need to make things right with Him and to live right before Him. But beginning in verse number 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for 
good works. The good news is, is that in Jesus Christ, if you've come to Christ, God gave you everything pertaining to life and godliness. God has given you great helps for holy living, the kind of life that God wants you to live. And I want to mention a few of these uh, this morning in this text. And the first one happens to be this. There's a gracious, what I'm going to call a gracious going. Verse number 11 and 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly, even in this present age. Now, the arrangement of verse 11 in the Greek text is a bit complex for uh, some, and it can be a challenge to communicate this in the English language. So let me read this literally as it appears in the Greek text with the word order found in the Greek text. Verse 11, this, this is how it would read appeared the grace of God saving to all. Appeared the grace of God saving to all. So God's grace can save anyone, and thank God it has appeared. The first word in the sentence is appeared, and it's, it's an unusual way to uh, frame a sentence, not only in English, but also in Greek. And because of that, it is emphatic. This grace of God, which saves all from the penalty, power, and presence one day of sin, has appeared. It is here. God has initiated the holiness of all people. God has involved himself entirely in the holiness of all people. Um, There's a gracious expression. It has appeared. There are things about God that we will never know by self-discovery. On our own. We'll never look at the knowledge of God and say, Eureka, I found it. That's just not how the knowledge of God comes. God is cloaked. God is hidden, and He's not known unless He revealed Himself. And if you know anything about God, it's because maybe in an unspectacular way, God has made Himself known. There's a gracious expression. Then there's a gracious extension. This salvation has appeared, and it's available to all. That means no one has come in here today that is hopeless. No one has to continue making the same mistakes over and over again. No one has got to struggle uh, in a failing way from this point on. No one's got to do that. This saving grace has appeared and it's available to all. That's the gracious extent. Then, gracious education. It teaches us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age if we deny ungodliness and lawlessness before God. So there's a yes and no here to the holiness of God, and God's grace teaches us this. We we are to say no to some things, that's the negative aspect, and then we're to say yes to some things as well, and God's grace teaches us that. Now, the word teaches us in verse number 12 is a word that is often, usually translated, uh, not teach, but correct, chastise, discipline. So God is graciously active in lives to chastise, correct, and discipline to keep his people from disappointing him and disappointing themselves uh, with their behavior. So it's a gracious education. Then a gracious exchange. We deny deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Now some might whine and complain about that. That means I can't do what I want to do. I can't pursue what I want to pursue. But the alternative in the exchange is this. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. 
Hey, think about all the heartache and sorrow that you're aware of. Your life, others' lives, maybe in your family. Think for just a moment of all the heartache and sorrow that you know that people have produced on themselves, that people have manufactured for themselves. I mean, all the misguided decisions, all the embarrassing moments. Would it not have been better to deny, to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts? And wouldn't life just be so much sweeter if we had all lived soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age? Listen, I'm here to declare, and I want to make it abundantly clear, and I think most of you, if not all of you, could join me in saying that God's way is better than anything this world has ever had to offer. Much better. His way is the best way. And you know, it just amazes me. After all the centuries of heartache and sorrow and disappointment with worldly lust and ungodliness, people continue to pursue it. They will. It's stunning to me. And no one has ever been satisfied in heart and soul. No one's ever built a life. No one's ever built a family. No one's ever built a marriage. No one's ever built a vocation. No one's ever built anything by living in lust and ungodliness. Not one time. Every soul's been empty and disappointed any time that's been pursued, and yet there will be people even this week, who will think, I'm going to be the one exception. Solomon couldn't be the exception. Demas could not be an exception. Judas Iscariot couldn't be an exception. King David was not an exception. I'm going to be the one exception in all of this. Listen, there is a gracious exchange that takes place here. Whenever you say no to these things, God says yes to the rest and comes through. There is a great exchange. I remember I worked one summer with youth camps, uh, centrifuge camps, with a young lady by the name of Lynette Baldwin. Uh, Lynette had a tremendous spiritual pedigree. She really did. Her dad was director of evangelism for the Alaska Baptist Convention. And she gave her testimony one time and said she was struggling with following the Lord, especially as it related to a guy that she was dating. He didn't care about God's will. He wasn't a flame for the Lord Jesus and she knew better, but she dated him anyway. And finally, she came to the conclusion, this relationship's got to end. It's got to end. And so she ended it. And she said, no, no more to this. And she was comforted in the fact and endured that difficult breakup by coming to the conclusion that God does not remove things from our lives. He replaces them. You see, God knows you. God knows your gifts, your burdens, your joys, your experiences. God knows your calling in life. God knows your future. And God is just waiting for you to say no to some things so he can replace them with something else. God is good, gracious, and generous. And what we have here is that God has taken the initiative in this text to come to you and to walk with you and to do something neat in your life. There is a gracious going. God has initiated this in your life. Life is precisely what he's doing. In other words, God is initiating it now. Now let me ask you, do you know why my wife, Sherry Michelle, loves me? Well, that wasn't very encouraging. 
I know some of you are saying, well, she just couldn't help herself. That, that may be true, but um, um, she does because I initiated a relationship with her. I mean, I couldn't, st- I, I couldn't help it. I had to do something. She was on my heart. She was on my mind. I felt the Spirit's direction, and I tried everything I could to get away from her, and there was no letting go. I initiated the relationship. Do you know why you are in Jesus Christ for this holy life? You are there because God initiated something with you. God is trying to go in this gracious way with you. So there's a gracious going in this text. That is a marvelous help. And my counsel to you then is just go with it. Say say like the old hymn writer, where he leads me, I will follow. Now, one fellow was considering the mission field and said, I guess I'm going to have to say, where he leads me, I will follow. What he feeds me, I will swallow. There's a lot of truth to that. Just go with where God is going in your life. But there's a second gracious thing. Not only a gracious going, but also a gracious glory. You know, in experience, many experiences are positive or they are negative depending on whose side you're on. They are. World War II the coming of the Allied forces into Germany were a positive force if you were the French and if you were in a concentration camp. They were negative if you were a Nazi. Right? Uh, the appearance of law enforcement with the blue, lives, the, the, the blue lights um, flashing can be a positive thing if you're on the side of the law, negative if you've broken it. Uh, when children are in school, and the teacher steps out of the room and returns, that can be good news or it can be bad news, depending on whether you behaved or not. You see, an experience can be positive for one, negative for another, depending on what side you're on, and that's precisely what we're looking at in verse number, verse number 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the New Testament speaks of Jesus returning. Jesus came the first time to pay for sin. The next time he's going to return, he will eliminate it. Christ is coming again. Do you remember the first time you told your children about that? I remember the first time I told mine. They, they celebrated for about five minutes, jumped up and down, were absolutely thrilled. Wait, Jesus is coming back. Uh, up to that point, they, they were not aware. They hadn't been listening to my sermon. So, of course, they were four and five years old, so we, we can forgive that, but... Um, They got excited. Christ is coming back. He's coming back a second time. Now, whether that is a positive or negative experience for you depends on whose side you're on. Paul is assuming his audience, Titus and the church there in Crete, were on the side of Christ. Christ is coming back. And so look at how he phrases this. He he doesn't phrase it with the terms of the doom of the day of the Lord. The scripture does a lot of that. There are a lot of negative terms associated with the return of Christ. Doom and judgment and fire and um, fierceness and fury. That is a part of it. But look at how it is for the children of God that have committed themselves to Jesus Christ and trust His cross and resurrection alone. Look again, verse 13, the terms he selects. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you know that when Christ returns, it can be a positive experience? More so 
you can claim and you can look for it and call it the blessed hope and the glorious appearing. Now, this is marvelous news. In other words, Paul is taking the return of Christ, calling it the blessed hope, the glorious appearing, in order to incentivize holy living. There's a connection, in other words, between what Jesus will do one day and our holiness of life. There's something about knowing Jesus is going to return that incentivizes, that stirs, that moves us to live holy before Him. The most holy people in the world are expecting Jesus to come back any moment. Now, I can think of a couple of things that will help us with this. One is readiness. Readiness. If we knew that He could return at any moment, and we reflected on that, and we thought through that, and it didn't slip our minds, and if we didn't forget it, we'd have to be ready. There would be more of an incentive to be ready. But, but that's not all. There's also reward. When Christ returns, Jesus is bringing His reward with Him. Revelation twenty two twelve. He says, Behold, I come, and my reward is with me. So Jesus is returning that incentivizes and strengthens us for a holy life. And don't you want to be ready? This is a blessed hope and a glorious appearing. R.G. Lee was a famed Southern Baptist preacher from the 20s until the, uh, oh goodness, I think until the 70s. One of the greatest orators in the United States when it came to preaching Scripture. His uh, sermon, Payday Someday, has been distributed all over the world, translated into many different languages. But he told a story one uh, Sunday morning at Bellevue Baptist Church where he was pastoring uh, about when he was a boy. He was on the front porch with his mother, and he asked his mother, Mama, what was the, what's been the happiest day of your life? And he thought, well, uh, she might say the day I was born. But she didn't say that. Uh, he thought, well, maybe she will say, uh, the day she married my daddy. But, but it wasn't that. She's happy about both of those. But that wasn't the happiest day of her life. She said, when I was a little girl, we um, got news that your father, that my father, your grandfather, had been killed in the war. And I remember the news coming to my mother, and I broke up and I wept. It broke my heart. But my mother was very stoic and unemotional. But in the evenings, at nights, I heard her cry and I heard her wail. One day we were on the front porch. They were on a farm and she said we'd pick beans and we were shelling them on the front porch. And off in the distance, we saw a man approaching the home. And that wasn't all that unusual in that part of the state because there were several that were walking their way home from that particular war. And as he got closer, they noticed that uh, he was missing an arm. And her mother commented as much. And as the figure got closer, she says her mother looked up and she started staring at him unlike she'd ever stared at anyone before. And then she broke loose and started running. It was her husband. He had come home. He had been wounded. He'd been mistakenly identified as killed in action. And here he was coming home. 
She said, that was the happiest day of my life when he came home. Folks, our world has misinformed so many people saying Jesus is dead, but I'm telling you, he's alive and he's coming again. That is a happy day. And let me ask you, don't you want to be ready when he does? It, it could be sometime today. It could be before this service is over. It could be before I put a period at the end of this sentence. Doesn't that do something in your heart to want to be right with God and walk in the power of His grace that you might be ready when He returns? And by the way, He's coming back with all sorts of gifts. You certainly don't want to be dirty and filthy, living in lust and ungodliness when He comes. You want to be ready. Doesn't it do something to your heart to know Jesus is actually coming for you if you know Him? Well, it's a gracious glory here. But then there's a third thing that is a great help, and that is a gracious gift. And he mentions this in verse number 14. Speaking of Jesus, he gave himself for us. Now, he follows us at the end of verse 13. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's one of the clearest and least ambiguous references in the entire Bible to the full deity of Jesus Christ. We believe in the full deity of Christ. Christ was not merely a man, though he was fully man. Jesus was also entirely God. Not half God, not half man, not all God and no man, not all man and no God, but the God-man, the only 200% person ever to walk upon the earth. That great God and Savior went to the cross and gave himself for us. It's a gracious gift. Now, if we had given ourselves, that'd be one thing. But God gave himself in human flesh for our sin. Now, the, the way that this is stated in verse 14, again, the word himself is at the front of the sentence. And so it's emphatic. It's an unusual way to put a sentence, but it's emphatic. So it is Jesus Christ who gave himself, the great God and Savior who gave himself for us. Now, th there is uh, then uh, emphatic pain. He gave himself at the cross. Jesus Christ suffered at the cross as much as any human would suffer at the cross. Uh, his deity, his godness, did not prevent, prevent pain and suffering. He felt that as much as any human would. So there's emphatic pain. And, and it's for the purpose of emphatic possession. It says, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. In other words, we are bound to the guilt and power of lawless deeds. Jesus died on the cross and he broke that power of every bit of guilt and every lawless deed that he might redeem us or possess us and own us. So Jesus Christ takes personal responsibility for us like we would any possession. But then he goes on and there's emphatic purity. Not only to redeem us from every lawless deed, but to purify for himself. His own special people, zealous for good works. And so Jesus performs an act of purity by the cross. Now this is his work. And then there is not only uh, an emphatic purity, but there's an emphatic purpose as well. Purify for himself his own special people. That phrase was used for members of a household. So Jesus has come to possess us. He's come to own us, to eliminate guilt to make us his own, and to bring us close into his own household, and we become his own people. This is a gracious gift. So it, at the cross, Jesus laid claim to us and 
with the intention of cleansing us and then commissioning us to be zealous for good works. And so the life of those who know Christ should be markedly different from others. And we've got to ask the question today and ask it often. Are the things that we are living for worth Jesus dying for? Is Jesus getting the investment return that he has placed into us? So the whole point here is Jesus dies himself. Jesus redeems us himself. Jesus purifies us himself. Jesus lays claim to us himself. Jesus sets out a series and a path of works for which we are to be zealous, and he does that himself. Jesus is personally involved in producing holiness in his people. In other words, if you know Christ, you've got his constant attention. You've got the necessary correction. You've got the leadership. You've got the direction. Recognized or not, you've got his alerts. Recognized or not, he is personally involved. He is not negligent. He is not incompetent. Jesus knows how to run a life. He is the master of purity, and he he accompanies every believer's life from the moment of conversion until the end. Now, that's what Jesus does. What a gracious gift. In other words, the possibilities of holiness and purity before God are limitless for the children of God. It reminds me of a terrible rain storm and deluge that hit Southern California many years ago. And it was so intense and so prolonged, mud washed through many homes. And a mudslide came through one home and washed an infant away. The parents became alerted to it. They went outside and they searched for the child and could not find the child in the dark at night. When the sun came up, a few hours later, a rescuer came to the home with a bundle in his arms. And the bundle was covered with dirt and muck and filth. And living, he turned that bundle of baby over to the mother. Can you imagine her response? She grabbed that baby dirty and filthy as it was and pulled it up close, began to wash it off and cleanse it and rejoiced. Dear friend, you came to Jesus Christ or if you come to Jesus Christ, that is precisely the way God receives you. That's how he takes you. That's how he receives you. And he's willing to do it. You see, The price has been paid, Jesus has been vindicated in the resurrection, and he calls all to trust him and to give their hearts and lives to him. And he will receive you that way. But listen, here's where this begins. It begins with acknowledging, I'm that infant. I am swept away by the muck and mire and dirt and filth of my own choices. I may look impressive outside, but on the inside, and in my walk with God, it's a mess. And I'm acknowledging that today. I'm that infant. I've been washed away. Jesus has come after me, and I'm going to cooperate with his work in my life because I want God the Father to receive me with joy. That's where it all begins. When you trust him for that, that's where the cleansing begins. Would you open up your heart today? And say yes to him. You're surrounded by dozens today that have done that. And I want to tell you something. 
Oh, please listen. Oh, please listen. <laughs> the people that surround you that know the Lord Jesus, there's not a one of them that regrets giving themselves to him. I've never met one. Never met one that regretted giving himself or herself to Jesus Christ. The only thing he or she may regret is that they didn't do it earlier. That would be it. Why don't you do it today and say yes to him? Others of you, you've done that. But God wants you to follow Christ in baptism. He commands it and you're ready to obey him today. Others of you, God wants you to be part of this church. You come. We'd love to take you. There may be some other need. But quickly, stand with me, please. and Let's pray together and let's, uh, let's respond appropriately and positively to the Lord this morning.